Father, we have busy souls. I even feel it now. My soul is busy. Would you comment? Take our wills and bend them. Take our hearts and inflame them. Take our minds and instruct them. Take our affections and redirect them. Take our lives and use them. Take our sins and cleanse them. Meet us and free us for your glory and for your name. This is our corporate plea. Now, Father, a personal plea. Help our people to hear a better sermon than I preach. Labor among your people and place this text in the deep recesses of their souls. Amen. My wife, my wife loves weddings. The preparation, the music, the decorating, the invitations, the wedding dress, the pageantry, the vows, the I do's. She loves it all. And I do too. At least that's the impression I gave her when we were dating. <laughs> One of our first dates was to a wedding, a wedding for a friend of hers. Sarah was excited and giddy. We were on a date, but it was at a wedding. So it was going to get us talking about maybe our future wedding. <laughs> the wedding begins, and in this particular wedding, they dim the lights to make it more, I don't know, romantic, to set the mood. Well, it made me fall asleep. I, I fell asleep during the wedding. And, and Sarah looked over at me with my mouth wide open and, and drool dribbling down my chin. And she said, I'm going to marry that stud. He's a romantic. We've been in quite a few weddings since then. And we had our own wedding since then. We went to this one wedding. And during the vow exchange, the song system picked up some interference. I told Sarah, I said, I can hear the radio. It's picking up the local music station. It was light at first, but it got louder and really loud. And suddenly during the, the vow exchange, we heard these words being sung, carry me home to see my kin singing songs about the Southland. It was Leonard Skinner singing Sweet Home Alabama. Uh, the uh, bridal party didn't know what to do. I started singing along and clapping, but uh, no one joined me. They just looked on in horror. Sarah leaned over to the little children near us and said, this is why you don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> in that same wedding, a groomsman locked his knees and, and passed out. I mean, there are just red flags everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. One of our pastor's wives, Kelsey, went to a wedding where instead of lighting a unity candle, the couple decided to release a cloud of white butterflies. They got married outside in July in Southern California. They opened the box to release the butterflies and out came a ball of white fluff hitting the ground like a baseball. The butterflies died of heat exposure. 
A lot of things can go wrong at a wedding. It can be stressful and complicated, especially if you're the one planning it. My father-in-law, who has three daughters, told Sarah, my wife, when we were uh, engaged, he said, I'll give you $5,000 if you and Kyle just go and elope. I'll handle your mother. <laughs> but that wasn't going to work for Sarah. She's been planning her wedding since she was a child. Clipping pictures out of magazines and envisioning walking down the aisle. My grandmother made our wedding cake. That's what she did as a side hustle. The hospital was her main job and wedding cake creating was her side hustle. In retirement, she only made wedding cakes. I remember Sarah looking through the, the books of cakes that my grandmother had made and, and Sarah told my grandmother, I want a plain white three-tiered elegant cake my grandmother was like you don't want any bridges so some of her cakes look like city landscapes with bridges and tall peaks you don't want any waterfalls in your cake Sarah said no no, no I don't I, no creative pipe work on the edges of the cake just a classy three-tier cake so as a wedding gift to us my grandmother made the wedding cake for free and she made it just like she wanted it. The she, in that last sentence, is not pointing to my wife. It's pointing to my grandmother. She made it just like she wanted it. Wedding planning isn't easy. My wife isn't the only one who loves weddings. God loves them too. And I know this because he created weddings. He gave us a book filled with them. The Bible is bookended with weddings. We find a wedding in the first book of the Bible and a wedding in the last book of the Bible. We find a wedding at creation and a wedding at new creation. You, you could look at the Bible, the entire Bible in weddings. Adam and Eve had a wedding in the garden. There was a covenant ceremony before God. From that moment on, the Old Testament is filled with weddings. In the New Testament, Jesus' first miracle took place at a wedding. Jesus went to weddings, and he didn't fall asleep. Cana was the first wedding we have record that Jesus attended, but it will not be his last. He will not be a guest at the final wedding. Rather, he'll be the groom. I told you that the Bible is bookended with weddings. There's one to open Genesis, and then there's another to close Revelation. This wedding in Revelation has been promised throughout the New Testament. It has long been anticipated. In fact, all history has been eagerly awaiting this wedding. We have in our text that wedding. You are going to attend a wedding today. And not just any wedding. You're going to attend... Jesus' wedding. You're going to see him get married. No wedding cakes with bridges or waterfalls. No cloud of white but butterflies. And no Leonard Skinner singing Sweet Home Alabama in the background. See, everything goes according to plan in this wedding. Down to the smallest details because God the Father is the wedding planner. And he's been planning this wedding since creation. Planning the wedding for his son. He's not a, a stressed-out wedding planner. 
All things are under his control and all things will go according to his plan. Christian, I don't want you to worry about falling asleep at this wedding. I don't want you to worry about falling asleep as this wedding unfolds because you're going to discover that you're in this wedding. Non-Christians, you're going to get a sneak peek at this wedding. But that's all you have. Unless you repent and believe in Jesus, you'll not be at this wedding. You've attached your allegiance to another woman. Satan's woman. Your destiny will be hers, not the bride's. Fifteen seconds to put this passage in context. That's what I'm asking. Fifteen seconds to put this passage in context. John, living in the A.D. 90s in ancient Asia Minor, is imprisoned on an island for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. While on the island, he receives a vision. And he's to write it down and send it to seven local churches in an area known as, as what is now known as Turkey. God opens the portals of time and allows John to peer into the future. He says, John, you're headed for a wedding. Here's how I'm going to break this passage down. There goes the prostitute. Here comes the bride. There goes the prostitute, Revelation 19, 1 through 5. Here comes the bride, Revelation 19, 6 through 10. Now, at the end, I'm going to give you four wedding truths to take home, but this is going to be the, the meat of what I give you today. We have here God's woman and Satan's woman. Jesus' bride and Satan's prostitute. Do you know who the prostitute is? If you've been here for the last two Sundays, you know exactly who she is. She's the prostitute of Babylon. She dresses sensually to lure you to sin. Babylon in the scriptures, scriptures is simply the center of wickedness that allures and tempts. She's seductive and calls out to you promising pleasure. The world is seductive. It will attract you. The prostitute dresses in a way to make your eye wander. The world is after your eye, attempting to draw you away from Christ. Is this the way you think of the world? The world is a prostitute? The seven churches know that the prostitute has persecuted them, mocked them, kicked them out of the trade guilds. She's got blood dripping from her lips, the blood of Christians. The prostitute of Babylon was alive and well in the first century and she's alive and well in our century. But that will not always be the case. All through redemptive history, God's people were told that Babylon is coming down. Now, she has the last two weeks, we have witnessed her destruction. Remember now, church, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, she goes down. The first five verses of chapter 19 are the reaction to, there goes the prostitute. God's people are no longer living in Babylon. God has brought them out. He brought them to himself. They are now around the throne of God. Now I want your eyes on verse 1. Verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The saints are singing in heaven. 
It's, it's deafening. It says it's a multitude. This is most certainly the redeemed from all history. As God promised, they are more in number than the stars in the sky and more in number than the sand by the sea. They are innumerable, but not to God. He counts them and knows how many hairs are on their heads. He knows each by name. In this multitude are some from Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Sardis, and Thyatira. The seven churches are given a glimpse of how they respond once evil is finally destroyed and they are finally around the throne of God. In this multitude are some from not only ancient Asia Minor, but modern-day Turkey. There are some from the tribes in the Amazon basin, some from South Korea, some from the Aztec civilization, some from the Maasai tribes in Kenya and Tanzania, some from Peru, some from Poland, some from Papua New Guinea, some from Christian County, some from Clarksville. In this group are people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. If you're a Christian, you will be in this number singing. This is the church triumphant already in heaven. They are singing of salvation. God has brought them out of Babylon, rescued them. They sing a song of celebration. Not only can you look at the Bible in weddings, but you can look at the Bible in songs. The Bible is a story told in songs. At creation, the angels sing. Later, God's people pick up that song and, 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 and others and they begin writing their own songs. They were known as a singing people. But throughout the Old Testament, there were times when God's people lost their song. And God would eventually do something great, some delivery, and it, it would give them a new song. And that same pattern continues throughout the New Testament. Just as the Bible is bookended with weddings, it is also bookended with singing. At creation, the angels sing. At the final destruction of evil, the redeemed sing. We have arrived at the climax of history. The kingdom has come. And they sing. They sing a dual song. They sing because God has both saved them and destroyed the wicked. Notice verse 2. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has, mark this word, avenged on her the blood of his servants. Is this a twisted response to God's judgment? Is it right to celebrate when evil is punished? Are they gloating over pain? Unjust vengeance is wrong. Excessive vengeance is wrong. God's vengeance is holy. He is a God who avenges the blood of his children. The very integrity of God's word requires this end. God will judge every wicked deed ever done. He keeps receipts on everything. This is a celebration of divine justice. God's eradication of everything wicked. Church, there is an expiration date on evil. Verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! 
the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. They possess an irrepressible gladness at the judgment of sinners. Her smoke goes up forever and ever indicates her judgment is final. She will never rise again. Her reign is over. Now, what's unique about this verse compared to verse 2, the previous verse? This one praises God for eternal punishment. Something we must never apologize for. This is the second time we see them singing the word hallelujah. They end up singing it four times. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. Does it surprise you to discover that the word hallelujah is only found four times in the New Testament? All four are in this chapter. The word hallelujah means praise the Lord. The translators transliterated it instead of translating it. Transliterated it instead of translating it. it it's an onomatopoeia. An onomatopoeia is the process of creating a word that phonetically imitates and resembles the sound that it describes. Hallelujah. It is what it sounds like. Hallelujah. It's the same in every language. There are only three words that are the same in every language. You know what they are? Hallelujah, amen, and McDonald's. <laughs> Go to any developed country, say those words, and they will know what you're talking about. Verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Now, church, from the previous study, we know the 24 elders and the four living creatures are angelic beings. Now the angels join in with the humans forming one mass choir, all giving a ringing endorsement to God's salvific judgment. This is actually the last we will see of the 24 elders and the four living creatures. They fade out of the picture, and all eyes are now on the bride. Verse 5, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants. You who fear him, small and great. This mysterious voice speaks to the mass choir like a, like a choir director would. And he says, praise God all who fear him, both small and great. Praise, present tense, continually, over and over, never stop praising him. He's a God who welcomes all who fear him, both small and great. No matter who you are on earth, no matter what job you worked there, no matter what tribe you belong to, come. There goes the prostitute. Here comes the bride. The, the ugly must be put away before the bride's beauty can shine forth in all her splendor. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Church, this is the rock-bottom foundation for all worship. God is sovereign. He's the Almighty One and the Omnipotent One. 
Only God's sovereignty will give you a note of praise that is strong and sustained. There is a new sheriff in town. No more will God's world be ruled by incompetent, unworthy, unqualified government. No more will God's world be troubled by those who cannot rule it. God is on his throne. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. (laughs) Marriage is God's favorite metaphor to represent his relationship with his people. This is a heavenly marriage. God the Son is called the bridegroom and the church is called the bride. There is nothing sexual going on between you and Jesus. It's a metaphor. It's very important for you to remember that through all of this. This is not speaking about anything sexual. It's a metaphor. And some of you guys are like, Kyle, I'm not sure I want to be a bride in heaven. God made me a man. I want to stay a man. Okay, cowboy, let me back it up a little bit. In some places in the Bible, we are all sons. Here, we are all brides. It's putting your imagination to work. It's a metaphor. You take any metaphor too far and it falls apart. This wedding is a picture of salvation. God the Father arranged from all eternity the marriage of his son Jesus to a countless host of saved sinners purified and beautified by his own blood. She made herself ready. This speaks of the preparation of the bride. She's endured. She suffered faithfully. She made it to the altar. Verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright, And pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We now see the bridal gown, the wedding dress. It's bright, shining, brilliant, radiant. She didn't stitch the white wedding gown herself, Jesus made it. This is classic Ephesians. God presents the church to himself, pure and holy. He beautifies her to stand next to him on the wedding day. Who is it that fits us for heaven? The lamb. Don't get confused by this verse. You are saved by works. But the works of another. Your groom. It was granted to her to clothe herself. It is a divine passive where God is the agent behind the act. The bride is pretty because the Lord made her pretty verse 9 and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb now church let me ask you a question if Jesus is the groom and we are the bride then who are the guests? Who are the guests? Now, I'm going to give you two options. One is my opinion, 
and the other is wrong. <laughs> Option number one, which I do not hold. Option number one says that the Old Testament believers are the guests and the New Testament believers are the bride. This position says there is a distinction between Old Testament Christians and New Testament Christians in heaven. Henry Morris and John MacArthur, some old-timers like Adrian Rogers and Donald Gray Barnhouse all, all believe this. We are the bride, and Moses, Daniel, Joseph, David, Rebecca, Ruth, uh, Rachel, Esther are all invited to the wedding, but they are the guests. Now that's option one. Option two is what I do hold to. I see this as a mixed metaphor. The church is the bride and the church is the invited guests. It's two pictures pointing to the same individuals, the same reality. I could walk out New Testament parables to prove all this, but I'll leave that on you for homework. Multiple images for the same reality are common in this book. Now, <laughs> I guess there is a weird little third view called Baptist Briders. That they believe that only the Baptists are the bride and everyone else, like those Presbyterians, are the guests. <laughs> I'm sorry, R.C. Sproul and Kevin DeYoung. <laughs> I'm pretty positive independent fundamental Baptists came up with that. <laughs> Beloved, we have a mixed metaphor here. The bride and the guests are the church. Now, notice how John responds to this vision that the angel revealed to him. Verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet. Now that's good. To worship. That's good. Him. That's not good. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Angels know that God alone is worthy of worship. He tells John, boy, get up before you get both of us in trouble. The worship of angels is rebuked in Scripture. John has a breach of etiquette. He sins. He worships the creation over the Creator. Now, how could John receive this glorious vision that we've been walking through for 20 weeks? How could he receive this glorious vision and then sin right after? The same way you will sin after you've received it today. This is one of the many reasons we can rely on the truthfulness of this vision. If I were John, I would have left the part about me worshiping the angel out. Oh, no doubt. That would have been cut in my first edit. But John reveals it to the seven churches. He will read this letter to the seven churches with this line in it. How embarrassing. The angel commands John, worship God. That is the point of the vision. That is the point of every act in human history. That it would lead you to worship God. That is the point of the wedding metaphor. Worship God. Now, I'll give you four wedding truths to take home. Four wedding truths to take home. Some of you are like, man, world's shortest sermon. That's what I'm talking about, Kyle. These are very long. Okay, this is actually a longer sermon. So, I, you know... Deal with that. Okay, four wedding truths. Wedding truth number one. You are under obligations. You are under obligations to remain faithful to your soon-to-be husband. 
You are under obligation to remain faithful to your soon-to-be husband. Jesus expects his people to be faithful to him while waiting for the wedding day. Is that too much to ask? John writes to these seven churches and he tells them, you're headed for a wedding. Be faithful until the day arrives. Keep yourself pure. This text speaks of bridal preparation. That's one of the most joyous things for a bride is that whole getting the hair done, putting on the makeup, getting in the dress, the bridal preparation. And the metaphor carries over for us. What is the bride of Christ doing in verse 8? Well, well let's read it. Verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. She's preparing herself. This is bridal preparation. And this is what you are doing every day of your life. You are always getting dressed for glory. Always getting dressed for this day. Now, married ladies, let me just talk to you for a moment. How did you go to your wedding? Did you roll out of bed 10 minutes before it started? Hair looking like a jungle? Breath smelling like a dragon? Did you stroll down the, the altar that way? No, you prepared yourself. The single most beautiful thing about this bride in our text is that she kept herself for the groom. The wedding dress is both a gift and a responsibility. Keep it clean. You only received the pure garments by grace. But don't get it twisted. This is a grace that works. Works that are verifiable proof of grace. Jesus expects some progress and beautification. Now church, I, I wanted to skip this point because I, I don't like it. It can be too easily confused. She's clothing herself in righteous deeds. Sounds too much like work salvation to me. But you know you can't get to heaven by doing righteous deeds. It was Martin Luther who said, if any man could get to heaven by sheer monkery, I would have. These righteous deeds in the text are evidence you've been given the white wedding dress. She's ready because she lived a holy life. The point of this passage is that you need to be ready for this wedding. Well, when will it happen? When will it happen? There goes the prostitute. Here comes the bride. God the Father set the wedding date and he hasn't revealed the timing to anyone. Mark 13, 32, but concerning the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. We don't know when it's going to happen. We just know that it's going to happen. So remain faithful until your wedding day. It's not too much to ask. Wedding truth number two. Once this wedding happens, there will be no other weddings for all eternity. Once this wedding happens, there will be no other weddings for all eternity. Now, in this, I want to talk to groups of people. I want to talk to little girls dreaming about weddings. I want to talk to single adults who have never been married. I want to talk to those of you who are divorced. 
whether it's the fault of your own or the fault of your spouse. And finally, I want to talk to those who are married. I'll take each group at a time. First, to little girls dreaming about your future wedding. What you are doing is good and fun. Keep doing it. Keep dreaming. Keep planning. Keep doing your little scrapbook with your wedding ideas. All of that is good. You know who put that in your heart? God did. And you should also give thought to your groom and who that's going to be. He needs to be a Christian. He needs to be committed to corporate gatherings. He needs to love Jesus more than money and work. He needs to honor and care for you like Jesus honors and cares for his bride. He needs to love the Bible and take the lead in teaching it to the children that God will give the both of you. Now, little ladies, I do want to point something out to you. You think about weddings because your heart yearns for another wedding, the final wedding with Jesus. See, this is, this is what you will discover. After your wedding, you will still think about and love weddings just like my wife still thinks about and loves weddings. And you will do that because you were made for this final wedding and your heart will long for it until it happens. Now to single adults who have never married. Single adults, you, you don't need to cringe when you hear the word wedding. God has called some of you to remain single. That does not mean you're weird or you messed something up. Paul was single. Jesus was single. You may be called to singleness. Do not feel out of place at church like corporate worship is just a place for married people. This is for you. The local church is for you. One of the elders of our church now, when he first came, he was single then, and he said to himself, Faith Family Church. Is this, is this a church just for families or single people allowed there too? This is a family of faith. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That was the point of the name. Not sure it always comes across that way. Remember, single adult, there are some truths about God and his kingdom that shine more clearly through singleness than marriage. Like this, relationships in Christ are more permanent and precious than relationships in families. Relationships in Christ are more permanent and precious than relationships in families. I think it was John Piper who said, God promises singles better blessings than the blessings of sons and daughters. Anyway, I'm probably getting off topic. Single adult, your singleness and Jesus's will end at this final wedding. It could be the will of God for you to never have a wedding on earth, but it is the will of God for you to be in this wedding in heaven. Now, to those of you who have been divorced, you don't need to walk around with a scarlet D on your blouse all the time. You don't need to live under a stigma your whole life. If you are at fault, repent and move forward. If you are not at fault, you were cheated on, you were beat, you had to escape the drug addiction, the verbal beatdowns, realize this. The best is yet to come. There is a sinless groom awaiting you, Jesus Christ, 
who redeemed you and adores you. Marriage will never again be a place of fear and hurt for you. It will be a place of joy and freedom and gladness. Now to those of you who are married, never has there been a wedding more significant than this one. This is the wedding to end all weddings. Marriage as we know it today will cease to exist in eternity. Your marriage will cease to exist in heaven and on the new earth. Now, hearing this may, may be a disappointment to you. R.C. Sproul's wife told him, don't teach that stuff. Death will not part us. <laughs> he tried to tell her otherwise, but she would not accept it. He said, Kyle, how do you know we will not be married in heaven? Well, well, I know it because Jesus said so. Remember when the Sadducees attempted to stump Jesus with a question? If a woman has seven husbands and they each die, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now, some of you have been married multiple times. Have you ever thought about that? Well, you think you'll just get to pick the best one? Well, number two was great. Number one, three, and four, not so much. Number five, stinky breath. I'll take number two for all eternity. If a woman has seven husbands and they each die, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Jesus answered that and he said, men and women are not married or given to marriage in eternity. Marriage is temporary. Now, when we think of marriage not existing in heaven, it can be a painful thought. And you say, like, Kyle, is this how you comfort a grieving widow? Well, I've, I've been with some of you in that moment. Holding you with one hand and your deceased spouse in the other. I comforted you with the promises of Jesus and a resurrected life. We must remember that there is no pain in heaven. To die is gain. Not only does it mean to gain Christ, which would be enough, but it means to gain everything else. When death comes, I will not see the sun anymore. Correct. But the light will be much better. Gain, not pain, Jesus will be the light. Your relationship to your spouse in eternity will be enhanced. You don't have a category for it. It's, that's why it seems sad but you will be closer to your Christian spouse in eternity than any earthly husband and wife relationship could produce. John Piper says, marriage is the shadow to the reality. When I went to Honduras to teach Christ-centered preaching from the Old Testament, I took a picture of my wife with me. It was, it, it was on my phone. And while I was away, I could just look at her picture any time I wanted. Now, imagine this. What, what, if I, what if I came back on the flight and, and Sarah picked me up at the airport and I'm still looking at this picture of her on my phone and, and then she comes running because that's always how she picks me up at the airport. Right? <laughs> she, I'm just looking at she comes running. I'm like, yeah, those are my bags right there. And I'm still just looking at this picture like, wow, she's great. Look at this picture. And if you were there, you would be like, hey, dummy, you have the reality. You don't need the picture anymore. 
Well, beloved, I'm going to tell you the same thing. Hey, dummy, you have the reality. You don't need the picture anymore. You have the final marriage. You will no longer need earthly marriage. In heaven, no one will say, "Mm, I wish I was married. No one will say, oh, I wish it was the way it used to be back on earth. No one will wish for anything. All ecstasies and intimacies then will be with God. Jesus will surpass every wish. Not one will be deprived of anything that is necessary for maximum and optimal joy. Whether whether physical, sensual, or sexual pleasure that you enjoy on earth, all of that will be greatly transcended and magnified beyond our imagination in the life to come. And you say, explain all of that to me. I can't. But I know marriage on earth was borrowed from the ultimate marriage. God planned this wedding in Revelation before there was ever one wedding on earth. Beloved, God didn't borrow marriage from us. Like, oh man, they created, that is a, that's a wonderful idea. I'm going to use their creation to teach a truth about my love for the church. No. God didn't borrow marriage from us. We borrowed it from him. Our marriage is a shadow. This marriage is the reality. Our marriage will ultimately give way to what it was pointing to the entire time. That's wedding truth number two. Wedding truth number three. There's not just a wedding in heaven. There's a wedding supper. Weddings were the single greatest celebration and social event in the first century. They were parties. And not parties that lasted for a few hours. I'm talking week-long celebrations. Weddings were crazy social events. The wedding feast could last up to a week. I, I, I remember ours. I remember our, our wedding feast, our wedding reception. It lasted two hours. And I was telling Sarah, let's get out of this joint. These people need to go home. Don't they know what they are delaying? Have some respect. They were, these are big social events. That's why when Jesus went to the wedding in Cana and they ran out of wine, it was such a big deal. Did I say wine? I meant Welch's grape juice. (laughs) The, The party died when the food and Welch's grape juice stopped being served. Then Jesus turned the water into wine. The social event is back on. It's time to keep partying. Now, I'm always trying to get you to think more Eastern than Western. And it really helps when talking about wedding suppers, wedding feasts, wedding meals. We've looked at the Bible in weddings. We've looked at the Bible in songs. Now let's look at the Bible in meals. The Bible is a story told to us in meals. In the garden, God spread a perfect banquet. The Garden of Eden was one big table. And we know what happened. Our first parents brought sin into the world by eating a meal without God. This is a meal gone wrong. Later, the Passover was instituted and God's people were once again able to eat a meal with God. 
For the ancient Jew, and still for Jews today, Passover was an annual meal that commemorated the defining moment in the history of Israel. The Lord rescued them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. You remember the night before the delivery, God told the families to kill a lamb and, and paint the blood over their doors. When death came to Egypt, it would pass over their house. So there was a garden meal, there was a Passover meal, and then God promised to bring them to a promised land. Remember on the way, God dropped Krispy Kreme from the sky? Until they reached a land flowing with milk and honey, it's a feast. God is the host. God is always spreading a table for his people. The garden meal, the Passover meal, the Krispy Kreme meal, and then Jesus' ministry, he was constantly eating, regular at meals. Jesus was constantly eating with friends and foes, and no one really understood why. John the Baptist emphasized fasting, Jesus emphasized eating. You got a garden meal, you got a Passover meal, you got a Krispy Kreme meal, you got regular meals. And then at the end of his ministry, Jesus instituted something we call the table. It's often called the Lord's Supper. This was a meal of reflection and anticipation. It looks backward to the cross, and then it looks forward to the final meal. We're actually going to go to the Lord's table at the end of the service today. The, the Lord's Supper is a look into the future. It is an appetizer. It's a dress rehearsal for a wedding feast in heaven. The garden meal, the Passover meal, the Krispy Kreme meal, the regular meal, the Lord's Supper. Finally, we arrive at a meal that never ends. The meal in our text, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus said while on earth, he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it new with us in the kingdom. This is the kingdom. Jesus is back at the table with his bride. This is where we are headed. Now, most people don't think of heaven in terms of a meal. But Isaiah says that's exactly how we should view it. His vision of the great messianic feast in Isaiah chapter 25 verse 6 says, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. God is the host, and he's throwing a banquet. On the table, there's the best meats, the finest wine, red meat, red wine, and they're color-coded in the goodness of God. For those of you who do not eat meat, I don't know what the great messianic menu means for you. I'm serious, I don't know if you're going to be at the kitty table eating mac and cheese or what. I do know God will make it. One pastor said that in the kingdom of God, there will, be, there will not be anything that ends in Eidos. No Doritos, no Cheetos, no Fritos, no frozen pizzas, no Hot Pockets, no ramen noodles. Don't picture heaven like an eternal choir in robes sitting in colorless clouds strumming a harp. Picture superior company, food, taste buds, and, and, and palates not injured by the fall. When we forever eat a meal, with God. Wedding truth number four. And this is the last. The gospel is the invitation to the feast. Repentance and belief are your RSVP. 
The gospel is the invitation to the feast. Repentance and belief are your RSVP. Non-Christians, this is for you. Verse 9 of our text reads, The angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This invitation is for all who will repent and believe. The gospel of Jesus Christ is your invitation. This is a feast where laughter and joy are unstained by sin. Friend, Christianity is not a tool to lower your blood pressure. It's an invitation to a wedding feast. But you have offended the host. Your sin is an all-out assault on a holy God. Repent, believe, and feast. Father, what a wedding. What a feast. What a bride. What a groom. Please, give us the perseverance to remain faithful until our wedding day. It's in the beautiful garments of Christ that we make this request. Amen.